About Empathy is a podcast about patient, caregiver, and healthcare provider experiences with serious illness. This podcast gives voice to their stories. With each episode, we hope these engaging discussions inspire you to have more empathic, authentic, and compassionate conversations. I'm Dr. Irene Ying, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Dr. Dori Sekaracha, and I'm Dr. Giovanna Siriani. For years, we have worked together, taught together, and learned from each other in our roles as palliative care physicians. Thank you for listening. We are so honored today to be joined by Mishi Methvin. Mishi and her partner, Amy, have lived through the devastating experience of the death of their young daughter, Stella. Soon after Stella turned two, she was diagnosed with diffuse intrinsic pontine glioma, a fatal brain tumor, and was given a prognosis of months to live. The decisions that followed may seem both conventionally radical, such as foregoing the physician-recommended radiation treatments, and radically joyful, like giving Stella ice cream for breakfast every morning. Appropriate because Stella's middle name was Joy. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mishi. Thank you for having me. Mishi, can you tell us about Stella and the circumstances leading up to her diagnosis? Stella was the firstborn for my partner and I. And I think that's important because often when it's your firstborn, everything is confusing and overwhelming. So Stella from day one confused and overwhelmed us. She was a bundle of energy. She had a head full of red curls, huge smile, completely mischievous. You know, in play groups, when all the other babies would be sitting, she would be, you know, needing to be bounced all the time. <laughs> she had endless energy. Once she started daycare, she would like dive headfirst down the slide. We kept getting incident reports from the daycare of all of the energy that she had pushing her friends and biting her friends and just like making sure that the world knew that she was here. She just filled every room with energy and love and light, but she also was a handful for sure. <laughs> a big handful. <laughs> So the daycare actually noticed that she was limping one day. And that was sort of what told us that maybe something was a little bit off. We had noticed her limping a little bit too, but I thought it was because of these really ugly foam sandals that I had bought at a discount mall that were like platform <laughs> sandals. <laughs> she really liked them, but I thought that her walking was getting weird and wonky because of these foam platform rainbow sandals that she would always wear. But when the daycare said that they also noticed that, you know, she was a little bit wobbly on her feet, we decided to get it checked out. Mm. Time was of essence because we were both very busy and we had jobs and we thought, you know what, we're going to go into a merge. Stella not only attacked each day with vim and vigor, but she started her days at 4.30 in the morning without fail. So we thought, hey, she's up anyway. We'll just take her into the emerge. We'll get her looked at. You know, we'll get it taken care of and then we'll go to work. So we took her into Emerge. We said, you know, maybe it was an inner ear infection. Maybe it was Lyme disease because we had been camping. And we called our work and we said, you know, we're going to be maybe an hour late because we're just getting something checked out. We ended up being there all day. And, you know, nobody was telling us anything. They put us in a room and they just kept sending more and more mm -hmm. doctors in and specialists and different people would come in and they'd look at her and then they'd leave. And then a couple hours later, somebody else would come in. So we ended up being there all day, but we still didn't have any inkling of what was happening or what was coming. And I was actually getting really frustrated and grumpy. Yeah. I wanted to go home and I wanted Stella to go home and I just wanted like, give me the meds, fix whatever it is. Let's get on with this. And it was a Friday and we had a busy weekend and I just remember being so like irritated. And then they said, oh, you know, we'd like to do an MRI just to rule a few things out. Can you spend the night 
And I was like, oh, are you kidding? But we said, yeah, let's just, again, get our answers and get the meds and get out of here. And so we stayed and they continued to do tests and the MRI. And then at about one o'clock in the morning, this team of doctors marched into our hospital room and flicked the lights on where we were all sleeping in the bed. And they Mm -hmm. said, oh, the MRI revealed that there's um, a mass on her brain. So oncology will be in touch with you in the morning. And then they just marched back out. And that was it. Mm -hmm. That was the diagnosis moment. And, And then everything that followed that was a lot of information, a lot of shock. That's shocking to hear, right? I think especially as three physicians who try so hard to focus on communication. That must have been so challenging. I mean, just being woken up in the morning like that and seeing something that big and then leaving. Yeah, the moment was was shocking. Yeah, I can't imagine. Yeah, it was, it was, you just, you can't, you could never prepare for that or understand it or or know anything. But, you know, I think they just wanted us to have the information as soon as they did. Mm -hmm. And then they didn't have any other information to give us. So there was nothing more to say. So that left you and Amy having to have a very serious discussion, I imagine, right away, especially after meeting the oncologist. And can you help us, Mishi, understand how did you and Amy come up with an approach on how to help Stella through this time? Well, I think, you know, even in the moment, even in the hospital, when your child is there, you're the parent. So you're trying to make sure that they're okay. Stella was only two. She was just over two when all of this happened. Mm -hmm. So really not understanding, you know, why we were there other than that there was really good food and she was getting balloons and presents. And so she was delighted. She loved the hospital. She thought it was great. (laughs) And information just kind of trickled down a little bit at a time to Amy and I. So we didn't really have any major discussions until Mm -hmm. we started asking really pointed questions about what this brain tumor was. Mm -hmm. You know, people are very reluctant to give really bad news. Mm -hmm. And I think nobody wants to be the person to deliver that type of news. So we were just kind of getting a little bit of information. It's, you know, it can be a fatal tumor. There isn't really a lot of treatment. Mm -hmm. So as we started to piece everything together, I would say around Mm -hmm. day two, we really got the full scope of this brain tumor, which really broke down to this is a brain tumor that really has no cure, that treatment doesn't save your child's life. It might Mm -hmm. prolong it, but it doesn't save it. And that there really isn't anything else that can be done other than, you know, maybe you could do some type of care to prolong life, but you will not be able to save life. So that messaging, once it became clear, really was something that Amy and I had to to think about and and consider. So what does that mean? And, you know, Stella at this time is completely asymptomatic other than a slight limp. So again, you know, you're in a hospital, you've got this kid who's just living their best life, going to the playroom and getting visitors and getting treats. And you're looking at this child and saying, how is it that these doctors are telling me that in three to six months, she will be dead? Like you have to just keep saying it over and over again in your head because it's so unfathomable. You know, we really didn't have strong feelings about the treatment at first Mm -hmm. until we sat down with the neuro-oncology team 
and they explained to us what the treatment was, was focal radiation. So they would, you know, radiate Stella's tumor for six weeks. And we said, well, there's no way she's going to lie still on a table while you radiate her tumor for six weeks. And they said, no, well, we'll sedate her. And, Mm. you know, you just bring her back and forth every day for six weeks. So that after that, there'll be some follow up and there'd be some IV and some needles. And, you know, we asked about what the treatment would give us. And they said, well, there's no guarantees, but it could give you an extra one to six months of asymptomatic time with Stella before the tumor really starts to grow. And once that happens, there's nothing more to be done, but you could maybe buy a little bit more time with her. So for us, the gamble was whether we wanted to spend six weeks of the summer, because this was late June when she was diagnosed. Mm -hmm. Did we want to spend six weeks of the summer bringing Stella to the hospital for a daily radiation and sedating her with IVs and needles when there was no guarantee that it would prolong her life. And it would mean Mm -hmm. a summer spent not doing all of the things that we had planned to do prior to diagnosis as a family, go to cottages, have barbecues, go to the zoo. So it was a gamble. But like everything when you're a parent, Mm -hmm. everything is a choice. Do you do the organic banana baby food? Do you mash your own bananas? Do you buy the store-bought? You question everything. And I think we just looked at Stella and we thought, if she's going to die anyway, let's bring her home. Let's look after her. Let's let her live her summer and not be surrounded by a hospital with needles and IV and scary things. Let's do what we plan to do. And as long as she is not in pain and she is happy, let's take her home and let's take her to the playground and do all the things that we had already planned to do with her. And that was sort of what guided our decision was just looking at our daughter and knowing how Mm. much she loved life and how much she loved Mm, activity and how much energy she had. And we thought, we're not going to do this to her. We're going to let her live while she's living. That's a very impactful story. Such a big decision and one that you and Amy would have had to talk about rather quickly because I'm sure the team is saying if you're going to have radiation, it's going to start on this date and give you that schedule. And I'm sure that decision quality of life over possible quantity, they're not even guaranteeing that, that must have led to other decisions along the way and having to explain this too to people. Yeah, absolutely. Mishi, did you feel there was external pressure from healthcare providers or friends, family or society to make a different medical decision? And what was that pressure like and how did it impact you? You know, initially when Amy and I have this late night conversation, we're feeling really good about the decision. Mm -hmm. We're feeling very Mm -hmm. certain that this is the right thing for our family. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we had to go in and have the meeting with the neuro-oncology team. And we told them that we decided against the treatment option that they recommended. And, you know, the lead neuro-oncologist was visibly shocked. And he kept reiterating to us that radiation treatment is the prescribed and recommended treatment for DIPG. And the follow-up notes that we got from that meeting the next day, there was three times stated on that page, parents decline treatment, Mm. parents decline treatment. I think faced with being told that your child will die, it's natural to want to fight and demand whatever treatments are available. And even though the idea of fighting a disease with a 100% mortality rate is futile, 
for some reason, it's more acceptable in society and it seemed for these doctors as well to fight the cancer, mm. to hope right till the end that your child mm. might be the first to beat the disease or, you know, to demand that they do something. We really found that as we started to share our decision with family and friends, there was a lot of support. That's good. But, you know, in our culture, hope is really synonymous with cure. So in that context, Amy and I had to live with this label that some people saddled us with that we had given up on Stella. You know, we didn't fight for a cure. We didn't put her in any medical trials. We didn't fly to a different country to try to get treatment somewhere else. You know, we just kept saying that we wanted her to have a good death and we just wanted her to live each day. And that acceptance of death is not as celebrated in society as, you know, as fighting is. So it was interesting. You know, we really had to be sure of our decision. We were questioned. And when we came out of that first neuro-oncologist meeting, they just ended by saying, well, if you're choosing not to radiate, then instead of three to six months with Stella, we're going to say maybe you only have one to three. You know, and then he just said, we don't really know what's going to happen now. I can't tell you what her death will look like. I can't tell you the trajectory of this disease because we don't know what it's like when we don't radiate. So, you know, they, they didn't have any other information for us. And then we further shocked them by saying, okay, so if we're not treating, then can you connect us with palliative care? Mm -hmm. And they said, well, palliative care. It's sort of early. She's just been diagnosed. She's asymptomatic. And again, we just said, but we know she's going to die. So palliative care shouldn't be brought in at the end of life. It should be brought in now Mm -hmm. because we want symptom control and we want comfort. We want that to start now. And we had decided that any treatment that we did would be purely for her comfort and her quality of life. So if you know, later on, there was some buildup of fluid in her brain, we would consider a shunt to release the pressure, but we wouldn't do it to extend her life if it wasn't necessary. Mm. That also was, I think, a bit surprising to everybody, but turned out to be the absolute best decision that we could have made. So we ended up in the exact place that we needed to be with our daughter, with a fabulous, amazing palliative care team. And it really just set the stage for us being able to live Stella's last months in the exact way that we had pictured. Thanks for sharing that, Michiana. Just the experiences and the ups and downs. And I think the language that was used, you know, about declining treatment and how that impacted you and Amy Mm -hmm. and both of you kind of defying convention. And you could tell that by the responses of your healthcare team and, you know, always having Stella's best interests at heart. And it's really admirable and brave. So Mm -hmm. thank you. Nishi, it's been a few years now since Stella passed away. Can you tell us about how Stella continues to live on in your lives? You know, in the moment, we weren't really sure what life would be like without Stella. And, you know, one of the things I think that anyone who is dealing with the death of someone who they really care about is this thought that they're going to be lost or forgotten. And, you know, particularly when it's a child, so Stella was two when she was diagnosed Mm -hmm. and and she lived 16 months. So not the one to three that doctors had thought, but she actually lived 16 months after her diagnosis. I think, you know, we all wonder what does it all mean? And will my child be able to say that she had an impact in this world and in this life when she had so little time? And really what I find has happened over the years is that our experience with Stella and the way that she navigated life and death has just 
naturally permeated itself into our lives and the lives of our family and friends and those who walked the journey with us, meaning that we really focused in during Stella's life and death on joy and the small things in the day that would make you happy. So I remember the first day that Stella got out of the hospital after being diagnosed, we were walking by the park and she wanted to stop and look at the birds. And prior to her diagnosis, I was always trying to get somewhere else. And I would often say things like, we don't Mm -hmm. have time to look at the birds. We'll come look at the birds later. And that day I remember thinking, well, let's stop and look at the birds. I mean, well, what else do we have to do? And we had this great time. We sat on grass, we watched all the birds and she was asking questions. And those moments really became, you know, how we have chosen to live on in our lives and to move forward. So really appreciating all of the small things, taking time to appreciate all of the really little joyful things in life, attacking each day with that same energy and vim and vigor that she has. And I find that it's just you know, a natural part of who Amy and I are now. And it's really extended into how we're raising our other children. So Stella has two younger brothers who she did get to meet before she died and a sister who she didn't. So we have three children and we really parent them in that same way that Stella taught us to parent her when she was dying, which is, you know, stopping and looking at those birds. I was walking Adele, her little sister, home from school on Friday, and I was rushing from the bus to home. And I'm thinking about the laundry and the dinner and the unpacking of the lunches and all the things. And all she wanted to do was step on little pieces of ice that were on the sidewalk and listen to them crackle under (laughs) her boots and exclaim about the noise. And I stopped what I was doing. And I thought, yes, let's stop and let's let you do this because the excitement and the joy on Adele's face was what I used to see on Stella's face when we would stop and look at the birds or stop and do something she wanted to do. So it's just these little tiny Mm -hmm. moments in life. It's, you know, letting the kids add food coloring to the pancake mix, even though it's messy, but it makes it more fun. And, you know, why not? So I, I think really that's been Stella's legacy for us is just learning to appreciate all of these small little joys in life that we might overlook and these little moments. And as you said earlier, Stella's middle name was Joy. We say it to each other, find joy. Or if there's, you know, a moment that's hard or it's uncomfortable, we say, okay, let's find our joy in this. And, you know, for our family and our friends, that just means find that moment that you can be grateful for something and that you can focus in on what's really important, which is just the fact that we're together and we're alive and we're living. I think that's a lesson we all need to be reminded of very often. We don't have much time left, but we always do like to end our podcast with the question, if only they knew, which is, If you could tell our listeners something that you wish that they knew when we're providing care to patients and families based on the experiences that you've had. So I wish that people knew that palliative care is not the end, but really the beginning of caring for somebody that you love. Because palliative care was with us right from the beginning, our family had this beautiful relationship with our palliative care doctors. They were with us as Stella declined. Every time there was a challenging treatment decision to be made or where are we now with this fork in the road, they understood us. They knew our family. They knew our values. And they were able to guide us and help us in that. 
And I think that because of that care and because we had 16 months of people who really took the time to get to know us and our family, we were able to navigate this horrible, unfathomable thing with our child in a way that we were really proud of. As you said, we didn't make her brush her teeth. She got ice cream for breakfast every morning. If she felt like, you know, going to the farm on a Wednesday at two, we took her to the farm. And that was because of the support that we got from the palliative care team. So I wish people embraced palliative care right at the beginning of any type of diagnosis. And I remember the palliative care team telling us at the beginning, even if somebody doesn't end up dying, that's okay. You can still have palliative care if the diagnosis itself is one that often leads to death. And if you don't need it, or if you have it for five years or six years or seven years, it doesn't matter. And I really think that's important. I wish that palliative care was just part of the continuum of care and wasn't brought in at the end as this final sign of it's over, we've given up, there's nothing left to do, when really it should be part of the care package for so many more people. And I think that's really important. Nishi, thank you so much for today and sharing with us Stella's story. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're listening to About Empathy. This season of About Empathy has been funded by the Golda Fine Award through the Tammy Latner Center for Palliative Care at Sinai Health in Toronto. The Tammy Latner Center for Palliative Care's vision is to allow patients and their families to experience a seamless system of caring through the embodiment of its core values of humanity, collaboration, innovation, and communication. To learn more, visit tlcpc.org. Welcome back to About Empathy. What an amazing conversation with Nishi. There were just so many lessons that I took home from her story. What stood out to you guys? For me, what stood out was hearing about the language that was used to kind of describe their decisions and their decision making for Stella's care. Nishi mentioned about saying that they had declined treatment and, you know, I'm not sure that that terminology is really fair or appropriate. They balanced what they understood about the nature of the treatment with the benefits of that treatment and they opted for a palliative approach to care. They opted for quality of life over quantity of life. And and so you could word that, I think, really differently and in a way that's more supportive and less accusatory, less kind of blame focused, because I think that's what I was hearing in what Mishi was describing. And so I think we have to be really careful about that in medicine, because oftentimes, you know, we'll use words that I think are not fair. So we'll say that someone is non-compliant with treatment. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's fair terminology to say or declined treatment. I think there are many reasons why people make decisions. And if they're making that decision based on a balanced understanding of the benefits and risks, I think it's unfair to to use that language. I think that's a lesson learned for me. I agree. Yeah. Sometimes I just need to sit back and just be more intentional with my language. And Mm. it's not treatment that they're declining. They wanted palliative care. So they actually wanted treatment, but just a separate treatment. So maybe Mm -hmm. saying something like declining radiation, Mm -hmm. because that was something that didn't really match up with their goals ultimately. The other thing that I thought was really interesting was the story around how the news was broken to them at 1 a.m. in the morning. And I feel like sometimes as physicians, we feel like we need to know all the information before we say anything to the family because we don't want to worry them. But, you know, I think you could tell from Mishi's story, like 
they were worried when they had to stay there overnight and they knew something was up. And I think it's not wrong to say, hey, this is what we're worried about. We're not so sure yet. And that's why we're doing these tests. And then conversely, when they knew what was happening, that you don't necessarily need to tell people right away. It's important to find the right setting and time to disclose that information. Mm -hmm. And sometimes as a palliative care doctor, I will wait till I speak to the oncologist because I want to know what the next steps are, right? Because when you break bad news like that, the next question is going to be, now what? Those are great points. Everything I heard Mishi say just hit home for me. I cannot say anything better than she did. She really reminded me about trying to appreciate life every moment. And as a palliative care doctor, I always knew I was very lucky to participate in people's stories that should have given me the knowledge to do that more than I do. She reminded me how important that is. And I hope that our learners and our listeners were able to really hear her because that was very powerful to me. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I feel like they are able to live that, living that life of finding the joy and taking the time and being grateful. They're able to live that because they lived that experience with Stella and everything that they went through and that Stella went through. And so it's very close to them, right? It's touched them personally. I think for myself, I haven't had that level of loss. And so it's more theoretical, right? So I find it harder to apply, but you're a hundred percent right. As a palliative care physician, we hear these stories every Every day. And I always kind of ask myself, well, why am I not applying it? And I think sometimes, you know, unfortunately, you kind of have to have that personal experience of loss before you make a change. But that's way too late. We have to do that earlier. Her story helped us to know the importance of we have to keep trying. We have to keep trying. Exactly. Yeah. Stella's legacy, I think, is going to have pretty far reaching impacts for everyone who's touched by it. Thanks so much for joining us today for this interview with Mishi. I think she taught us so much. We learned so much about Stella and what a force she was and how much they've helped us learn as both physicians and as people in terms of appreciating life every day. Thanks to Mishi. Our clinical experiences have taught us that there is much to be learned in the stories of the people we care for and work with. We hope the story that you heard today has inspired you to engage in compassionate, authentic, and empathic conversations. We'll be back next week with another story. Subscribe to About Empathy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, or listen on our website, aboutempathy.com. When you subscribe and rate our podcast, it helps others find us. Each episode will be added to your app when we publish. Please share our podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and health professionals. You can find the notes from today's episode and information about our show on the website. About Empathy is a Kickback Productions podcast hosted by Giovanna Siriani, Dori Sakaracha, and Irene Ying. Recorded and produced by Jackie Skinner. Music by Jerry Finn and Jackie Skinner. The podcast is recorded virtually and funded by the Golda Fine Award through the Tamulatner Center for Palliative Care at Sinai Health in Toronto. Visit us at aboutempathy.com.